Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Weekly Coop. I had a great episode with a guy that I met through a collective group uh, a long time ago. His name's Cody Helm, and he's called the Subconscious Programmer on Instagram. He is he's a great dude, first and foremost. Just a really foundationally sound individual, very conscious. And we talked about conscious leadership and how the C-suite needs to be the conscious suite of a business, which uh, is not being proactive right now, like in this corporate world. But that doesn't necessarily mean the corporate world is demonized, like in a way that, you know, people demonize the corporate world, especially like conscious, like entrepreneurial, like collective group owners or conscious wealth gurus a lot of them like demonize the corporate world but there is a balance in the corporate world like there are good companies that act in good faith and we just need better leadership all around so this was an amazing conversation with an amazing guy cody helm subconscious programmer give him a follow on instagram uh (laughs) i didn't get to plug him in the episode uh but i'm plugging him now so make sure you give him a follow after you listen to this. But first, hi foodies. Are you craving a new way to share your culinary adventures? Well, I've got the app just for you. It's going to be the hottest thing in town coming in March. A restaurant rating and review app, but also an app where you can find a job in the culinary industry. Imagine having a world of flavors at your fingertips. With this app launching soon, you can rate review restaurants with ease. Your opinions matter. And this app gives you the power to share your foodie wisdom. You can plan a date night, search for the perfect brunch spot, and also be able to find a hostess job or a waitress job. But here's the best part. You get to be a part of the pre-launch excitement. So I want you to go to feedery.org, sign up right now for exclusive access, and be among the first to savor the flavors of this revolutionary app. Head to our website, get ready to spice up your restaurant experiences, Cheers to good food and to even better reviews. Like I said, feedery.org. Also have an NFT project on OpenSea. Go check that out too. Go buy yourself a culinary creature. Join the Discord group as well um, for culinary NFTs. And give us a follow on Twitter or Instagram. So that being said, let's get after it. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Weekly Coop. Uh, it's good to good to have our first guest of uh, 2024, uh, having someone that is going to kind of enlighten us about leadership and consciousness. So this member here, we met through a collective group uh, a while ago, and you know, it's a guy that you know I really looked up to in terms of uh, his ethereal knowledge. Uh, as well as his business knowledge, being able to combine those two. I think it's very rare, very unique to do that perspectively. Um, but Cody, appreciate you being on. Maybe uh, introduce yourself. What do you do? Who you are? Um, and just a little background. 
Yeah, absolutely. So name's Cody Helm, obviously. Uh, you got that in there. And yeah, you and I met through a collective group together uh, a few years ago and uh, had some interactions in there. And so since then, we've departed from that group. And I have pursued a career currently in the cyber tech uh, industry or cybersecurity industry, I should say. Um, middle level management there now and striving to be a COO eventually either within this company or at a newer, smaller cybersecurity company later on. Um, but what I've really worked to do is incorporate the things that I've learned from my spirituality practices into my day-to-day -day environment at a corporate America setting, right? right. And so I've done a lot of that as, as I stand today. And along the way, I've identified areas where consciousness, frankly, needs to be improved in the corporate environment. And we can bring greater sensibility and clarity amongst C leaders in terms of their like self-awareness and ability to drive organizations. Right. So that's kind of where I'm at now is, is, working on building a business where I consult with C-level executives, entrepreneurs, and talk to them about their leadership styles and then provide uh, feedback and integrations of the spiritual side of things so that organizations can be led in a more conscious manner. Wow. That's beautiful. Yeah. No, that's awesome. I, um, yeah, I fully agree. So I work in technology as well. Uh, that's my like regular nine to five uh, working job. Uh, I work remotely, but the headquarters is in, uh, I'm from St. Louis and we do a lot of resell for big tech companies. Cisco is probably the biggest client we work with, but we work with like Palo Alto Networks, uh, Juniper Networks, Hewlett Packard, Apple, uh, AWS, you know, Microsoft, like all the big tech companies that you can think of, we resell them. Like we're we're huge. Um, we're, we're one of the top uh, technology companies that you could actually find, uh, which is very unique because, you know, we also do our own servicing from a consulting perspective, app development, strategic resourcing, um, anything you can think of. We actually provide that uh, service. And it's very unique because, you know, I definitely have struggled uh, through working in this industry and working in this company from a, a consciousness perspective, like working with or having conversations that are more conscious, you know, aware situations. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've ran a, a couple of coworkers though, that are actually pretty aware, which is actually kind of, it makes it a lot easier, you know, cause, uh, going to like dinners and like having like big group get togethers from my team, like, you know, once a year, in the office is is a lot better because now there's like more where you know people and it's usually kind of like uh people between the ages of like 23 and like 30 is kind of where i'm finding that sweet spot of like more aware individuals um i remember there's a guy i work with right now he's on the same team as me like he talks about like fasting like he'll fast for like you know two or three days and you know i thought I was the only one that was crazy enough to do, you know, stuff like that. But this guy, he's like, yeah, you know, I do this like, you know, once a month and, you know, I know all the kind of like spiritual benefits and like physical benefits of it. And it's, it's very, it's nice to have them, you know, from a conversation perspective. So Absolutely. from a leadership perspective though, I definitely 
see some disconnect and uh c-suite to me should be the conscious suite because uh, you should have leaders that are conscious people because when you have conscious leaders you have uh, people that lead out of higher vibration higher frequency they lead yes. out of love they lead out of uh peace content bliss courage all those high level you know vibrations instead of you know fear shame guilt anger you know, the lower vibrations. And, you know, when you have lower vibration leadership, that's where the turnover uh, comes into play. Because, you know, when you think about working at a company, like you have to think about the ROI perspective as well. And, you know, maybe you could actually talk about that more on, you know, how companies invest time and energy into employees because they want an ROI within a certain time frame. But like when someone leaves, you know, in a very short period between like, you know, three and six months, you know, there's actually costs that get incurred from those departures that people that uh, leadership doesn't really think about, like, the top leaders do think about it. But like those middle managers and directors, I don't think think about it, because if they did, they wouldn't lead the way they do. Um, And uh, what's your perspective on that? Completely agreed. So I think the first and most important thing of having conscious C-level leadership is that it turns the focus outward, right? We see so many C-level executives that have these like big equity packages and their incentives are really, they're they're self-incentivized, right? Their goal is to maximize their own individual profit, sometimes at the expense of what is best for the organization as a whole, right? And so by having people at the top who are self-serving and not thinking about those below them and bringing cohesion and awareness to the teams that they are serving, essentially, mm-hmm. uh, you have these greedy, high-level people who end up sticking around to get their golden parachute until it's time for them to depart and move on to the next organization and do the same thing. Right. Mm, And I think the traits of an effective leader are to build up those below them and promote them to expand, promote them to learn, promote them to grow. And we see a massive gap in that and the C-level with C-level executives, partially because their incentives financially are so great, right, that the incentive for development of others comes secondary, if not like tertiary to what their objective is. And so I understand that organizations are living beings and they, at the end of the day, their goal is to maximize their profit, especially in a market economy, especially in a capitalist environment. And the C-level objectives, the C-level's objective is to contribute to the maximization of profit, right? But I think you can do that more effectively if, to your point, you reduce attrition and have people around who actually desire to contribute to the health of the organization for the health of the organization and not for self-serving needs, right? So there's, there's two sides to this from my perception. You have the one side where, of course, people are subject to their human elements, their desire to serve selfishly. But as you raise consciousness in any environment, you increase the connectivity of all the beings in that environment, right? And the awareness of connectedness in that environment, perhaps more importantly. And so there's no 
It's no secret that the things that get flown down in an organization start at the C-suite and they roll downward, right? It's trickle-down economics. It's really hard to make bottom-up change in an organization. It's a lot easier for top-down change to occur when the leaders are driving those initiatives. And so it's my perspective that if leaders were to incorporate the same level of rigor behind driving connectedness and improving attrition in a more aware or conscious manner, the organization as a whole would benefit financially, which serves the human side of it, right? For everyone mm -hmm. involved. So I don't see these things as, as separate. I see them as, as connected and interconnected in a lot of ways uh, because it truly is a benefit to both the individuals in the organization and the organization as a whole, when you incorporate consciousness and awareness into the organization, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, it's interesting because I like to use uh, sports as a comparative method, you know, and you talk about the financial packages that, you know, these C-suite, you know, executives get to have. Um, and part of it is, you know, if they get let go, you know, they get financially compensated very, very well. Uh, and the reason why I use sports in this analogy is, you know, when a head coach gets fired, you see a lot or any coach um, that gets fired from a sports team, they get paid out millions of dollars, like when they get fired, because it's like negotiated in their contract and they like, you know, have all these things. But like, I guess where it's, it's a gap for me is, you know, when we get fired on our lower level jobs, like we get compensated maybe for the PTO that we don't like use that we have left, or, you know, we get some sort of maybe severance, uh, but you have to file for unemployment and like all these things because of the financial, uh, stress that gets put on you. But like these people at the top, if they get let go, they get seven figures coming in their way for not even working. And like, that's, that's, that's the shit that like kind of gets me sometimes. And I guess, you know, my next question for you is, <clears throat> do you think the monetary aspect does matter for, you know, people that work in not even just like, you know, associate jobs or entry level jobs, but even like, you know, middle management, um, maybe some directors as well. Do you think the monetary aspect, if it was better, uh, there would, I guess, just be a happier, you know, culture right now in the corporate world. Cause I, I just don't think the corporate world is happy right now, to be honest with you as a, as a collective group. I completely agree. So the first thing that I would say there is that I think that a fundamental part of a human being's drive for success within an organization should be tied to the company performance. And what I mean by that is more companies should offer equity to their employees because then you have incentive. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at this from the, the monetary lens, right? That then you have incentive at the lower levels for higher performance, if you will, right? And if we're looking at this from like the manager, director, and VP lens, if you're in an organization where there's no equity package, where your performance doesn't have 
a direct correlation to the performance of the company and therefore the uh, growth of your, let's say, ownership in the company, then you're going to have that dissatisfaction at a higher level, I believe. So what I mean by that is when you're just given a salary and you know the only way to increase your financial position is to just clamor through people and climb the ranks of leadership to get a higher salary, right? Then then you fundamentally break down any concern for others along the way. And you just have a bunch of people who are striving to just battering ram through the organization to get to that higher salary level, right? When you introduce equity incentives, uh, you change or shift that behavior because everyone's performance at that point becomes a contribution to the organization. And the better the organization does, the more the employees benefit directly, right? When there's an increase in stock price, if you hold equity within that company, then you're going to directly benefit from the increase in performance of the company. So yeah, I think that at the management director and VP level, the monetary aspect is huge. And really at every level, the monetary aspect is huge. But we know from studies that human beings aren't measurably happier after a $75,000 a year salary, right? So you don't, for every level that you climb after $75,000 a year in salary, you're sacrificing a lot more in, in time and sweat equity and your happiness levels don't increase in correlation with a salary increase. And so I think it comes down to the individual at that point where it's, what is incentivizing me? What is driving me to, to move forward at this company? What's keeping me motivated? What's keeping me going? And if it is the financial aspect of things, then truly asking yourself, like, is my performance tied to this organization in any way? Am I going to spend my entire life clamoring for that C-level title only to get to the end of my life and have achieved that potentially and achieve my golden parachute and walk away with loads of money, but I've wasted my entire life doing so? So yeah, I, I think that the latter of those things leads to severe unhappiness among an employer, the employee group, and the former of those things, consequently, like if you're given equity along the way, you can leave with a similar pack, not, not the same value, but a similar like investment in the company, right? Based on your performance. And I really think a lot of dissatisfaction comes from when an employee's performance is not directly tied to the benefit of company performance. Right. Where like you're putting in the work and you're putting in the hours, but you're not directly receiving any incentive outside of that. So if I had any advice to organizations today in this day and age, it would be offer people in equity, offer people incentives. And I think the world is trending in that direction. I think things are changing in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. Publicly traded companies offering stock, I think, is a good idea. Um you know, I, I know people that work for publicly traded companies, they get the stock options and that is pretty attractive. And, you know, if uh, there's, you know, companies that get acquired or, you know, getting let go, you know, the option to sell shares, you know, and collect, you know, the profit off of that and or, you know, keep those options and, you know, try to exercise them in a way where it, it's beneficial for you, I think is sure. good. I guess like my only question for, you know, what you just described, which I think is a great point. You know, I really do think equity is the important, you know, part to a company. Um, 
I didn't realize that's that about 75 K like, you know, you're not, you know, much happier after, you know, that incremental increase. Um, that's a good point. So uh, for private companies, you know, not publicly yeah. traded companies, how would you be able to offer equity? Like if you have, you know, thousands and thousands of employees, like, do you have a solution for that? Uh, yeah. So that, well, if the company intends to go public, I'll, I'll move forward with like, if the intent is for the company to eventually go public, um, at that point you issue, uh, pre IPO shares to employees is what, what I would say, um, mm. as opposed to like a dollar value to them. Right. So if you start with a company that's already public, they're going to issue you equity in the company at a dollar value threshold. They're going to say, Hey, you get a hundred thousand dollars worth of equity for joining with us. If you're yeah. with a private company and your intent is to go public, then you give people pre IPO shares where you say, Hey, we'll give you a hundred shares pre IPO for you joining us. Then if the company goes public, that person holds whatever the post IPO prices times the number of shares they were granted. Right. Right. And this is where, so, so this is where a lot of, Here's my, so let's take it back to, if you're at a private organization, right? And your goal is to, let's say, maximize your profits, maximize your potential in the near or long term. My advice would be to climb within that company as much as you can and take the skills you've learned from that company to go to a smaller company that intends to go IPO at a higher level, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. then if you're, if you're, let's say you get to the director level at the company you're at now and it's a private company, right? You can take that same skill set to a smaller company and get in at the VP or even at a C level and mm. get issued pre IPO shares at that level and help take the pump company public. And that's a massive benefit to your financial gain, obviously, right? So if you're with a private company that doesn't intend to go public, climb the ranks of that company and use that skill set to get to a company that does intend to go public and help them yeah. go public. And then you receive your your financial reward and financial benefit, right? Ooh, okay. Yeah. I like that. Um, I work at a private company. It's probably never going to go public, which is crazy because the revenue is, I think, $14 billion. Um, as a wow. like, yeah, like we That's make a lot insane. of money every year. Yeah. Like it's pretty wow. insane and they do profit sharing, but it's a very small percentage. Um, benefits, you know, health benefits are great and we'll get into that probably, uh, shortly too, but that's a good point. So like, I'm actually taking this as feedback from you right now, uh, you know, making content, but also taking this as a mental note because I've been in the corporate world for five years. Yeah. About five years. Um, been at, you know, the same company right now for about four years. Uh, and you know, it, it makes me think because like, I'm kind of associate level right now, like not managerial yet. Uh, but like kind of teetering on like customer success, like associate. So, you know, I, I, I like where your head is at because I do think, yeah, working for like a big corporation for, you know, quite a few years, like kind of grinding it out, seeing where you land, especially. And I think the banking industry or the finance industry is really good at this. Like you can go to a JP Morgan and like, it's not going to be great. Like it's going to be a lot of hours, like 60 hour work weeks for, you know, 
third, like three, four years. But then I see a lot of those guys when they get out of, of those big companies, they got very big roles like right away at like smaller, you know, financial firms or like smaller, you know, banking, you know, organizations, fintech or whatever. Like they're getting put into like managerial or like director roles, you know, and only being in the industry. But, you know, it's like that, it's like that badge of uh badge of honor, or like that badge of respect. Cause you work for, you know, a big company like that. So, yeah. um, and I think technology is no different either. Cause like if you work for, you know, Apple or Google, Microsoft or whatever, Absolutely. you know, getting into a smaller company, um, like if you work, you know, at a bigger company for, I think four or five years, you know, yes. you could get in a smaller company and get yes. to a, a better position. Yes. And that, that right there, what you just spoke on, uh, if you're an employee, that's an important distinction, whatever industry you're in, seek to get with the biggest organization in that industry, right? Climb mm-hmm. the way up the ranks at that org. So a, mo- a notable organization, climb the way up the ranks at that bigger organization and you get plucked by smaller organizations at a higher level. Right now, the pay increase might not be significant, but if you can get pre-IPO shares or equity in a smaller company that's growing, that will change the course of your life forever. That will change the trajectory of your life forever. That's one way to get ahead, quote unquote, get ahead as an employer, break free from the matrix as an employee, right? There's this (laughs) connotation in the spiritual community that you have to be a business owner in order to break free from the matrix. And that's not entirely true these days, especially with remote work now, right? If you can work from home, that's already location freedom. That's one aspect of freedom, right? The next thing is financial freedom. Well, how do you get financial freedom as an employee? You're bringing in post-tax money. It's a really challenging thing to do unless you're really intelligent at investing and know where and how to allocate funds, right? And it should be noted, it should be noted that Money flows to those who know how to allocate it best. I yeah. want to make that clear. If you're an employee <laughs> and, and you're good at allocating your funds to strategic investments, even if it's post-tax, you can break free from having a nine-to-five job. Make no mistake about it. You don't necessarily have to start a business to do so. Also, the trap that you fall into with starting a business, I've seen this time and time again, is that a lot of people just end up being self-employed. They just create a job for themselves. So you're still working in a rat race, but you've still got to show up for your job, right? You mm. still have to be there to make money. You're still trading your time for money. That's not a business owner. At that point, you're self-employed, which is just a job for yourself, right? You still have to trade your time for that money. You still have to show up for clients. You still have to be there physically. A business owner is someone who implements systems, tools, processes, and people to make it so that they don't have to trade their time for that money. The organization Mm. runs independently of their time, right? So I want to make that distinction for people because there's, there's this pervasive mindset especially among the spiritual community that you have to break out of a nine to five in order to become free, but you can leverage your nine to five to become free. If you apply certain tools and skill sets and you're good with the allocation of resources, right? 
if you want to be a success at all in life, you have to understand the allocation of resources, right? That's just base level knowledge. Time is a resource. How do you allocate your time? Money is a resource. How do you allocate your money? Your energy is a resource. How do you allocate your energy? Right? Those things are crucial to becoming a success. And if you mismanage those things, well, it becomes apparent in your everyday life that manifests itself as a lack of success. Right? right. So you might be saying, now I'm talking a lot about money and getting ahead and <laughs> you know the human side of things, right? Which is like the very three-dimensional world. So where yeah. does spirituality incorporate itself in all this? Where does consciousness right. incorporate itself in all of this? And that's something that I really wanted to get to with you today, man. So yeah, one of, one of the things that is so important that I see people failing at time and time again, this, I'll touch on why this is important to me in a moment, but People sacrifice their personal integrity for personal gain. Mm. I'll say that again. People sacrifice their personal integrity for personal gain. And what do, what do I mean by that, right? So people that are working a nine to five job, they are willing to people please. They're willing to schmooze. They're willing to violate their own personal constitutions at work with the people around them in order to get ahead financially, which is out of alignment with an individual constitution, right? And people yes. are more willing to do this at a job than anywhere else in their lives. They won't, they won't, they'll put boundaries in place with their kids, with their wives, with their family, but not with their boss, right? Because their boss has that carrot. They're dangling that carrot of success over your head. So the advice that I would give, if you want to incorporate consciousness into your nine to five life, and this will actually, believe it or not, help you get ahead in an organization. Never sacrifice your personal integrity for personal gain. Do not, if, if there needs to be a no in the room, if somebody needs to know that their feedback or their, their thought process is not the way to go about doing things, you need to be the person to speak up. You should not mm. people please and schmooze just to attempt to get to the next level. I constantly tell people no at my organization. I constantly put boundaries in place at my organization. I constantly prioritize tasks in a way that's beneficial for my time and my right. life and not what my manager or my manager's manager wants me to do. And I communicate that with them in a way that's not disrespectful, right? It's like, you've given me all these tasks. You've given me all these things to do. Here's what I can commit to over the near term. And here's the priority that I will address these things. And here's what I will not commit to in the near term. Yeah. And here's what I can commit to over the long term, right? So understanding that if you are not willing to violate your personal integrity and you're willing to put boundaries in place in your personal life, you need to do the same thing in your professional life. And look at all the C-level leadership that you engage with on a daily basis. Do any of those people cater to or people please the people around them? No. They say no to everything. They put directives in place. They define strategies. And you can do the same thing at your level, no matter what level you're at. And I guarantee you, your managers, the people that you report to will respect you more if you do those things. Mm. Wow. I'm blown away. Like, this is... This is such an amazing conversation because, you know, I was in that trap where I was like, I have to start a business. I have to like quit my job. Like I have to get to like this certain point, you know, and, and whatnot. 
But the thing is, you know, I don't know if that's completely necessary. If you're in a good industry or you're in a good company or you're with good people, if you do work remote, like you can be wherever you want um, and you can have, you know, opportunities to, to grow a lot quicker, you know, and, and the thing is, you don't have to worry about, you know, I know we we're talking 5D. So I guess like just to go back to the 3D for a second, like, you know, you don't have to think about like taking out big loans. Or you don't have to think about the financial implications of starting a business versus like if you work for a company and they give you great benefits, great pay, you know, remote, like if you have everything in front of you, that's great. Then, uh, shut the fuck up about, you know, your situation. So, yeah. Yes. So, Look. you know, and, and honestly it's interesting cause like, yeah, it's, it's those spiritual wealth gurus that want you to like, it's because they want you to be, desperate to like find a way out and they don't go within themselves to find their way out. They have to use like a mentor or coach. And I'm not saying like all collective groups are bad or all spiritual wealth gurus are bad. There are good people. There are. But like the thing is some of them use this fear tactic to put you in a state of, Oh, I desperately need this person uh, to actually enhance my life when in reality you can do it yourself. And that's what you were talking about in this 5d perspective that you threw on us in a beautiful manner. So I agree. I think people don't set boundaries for themselves because they're so desperate to chase money. I think that is just the initial problem, like very watered down response but like i think people are just so desperate for money fiat chasing that they don't look within themselves and actually know what they want to do so like they take jobs that they don't love like that's the thing like you know i think there's a job out there for everyone and it's not a bad thing you know i like if you love marketing and you work for a marketing agency and you can work remote have good benefits good pay and it aligns with you, like the leadership aligns with you and the company, you know, aligns with you. And there are companies still with good values too. That's one thing that I've had to change my mindset on too, is not all corporations are bad. Like not all corporations are immoral. There are good corporations that act in good faith, that act in goodwill. There are. And um, when you find a spot like that, you know, you're going to be so happy. You're going to put out your best work because when your vibration is higher, your productivity is higher. And you just put out better, you know, better energy. And so when you put out better energy into your work, like you're putting out a better product, better service, the customer is going to be happier, you're going to be happier, and it's a beautiful exchange. And that's the thing about like the spirituality perspective that you touched on, like setting boundaries and having high standards for yourself. So like when you go into interviews for like that new job at that new company, you are interviewing them as much as they interview you. That's what people don't understand is like when you go into interviews, be confident. I remember I got rejected of when I first got out of college. It was hard for me to find a job, which was crazy. It was 2019. The economy was pretty good and I couldn't find a job. And uh, I remember I was like interviewing at this at this uh, this company. I think it was like a staffing company. And I'm glad it didn't work out, you know, God's plan. But the person the feedback I got from the person was saying that I was too confident. And I'm like, I'm glad you cut me 
from like the interview list. Cause if you don't want someone that's confident, then you like, you don't want a real like person that wants to like actually work. Like you just want like a slave, like you want someone that's just going to be a yes person. That's going to compromise their morals, their integrity, their authenticity. You just want a brown noser, a kiss ass. Like you, you, you don't want someone that's actually going to be a good fit. You just want someone that just wants to stroke your ego. And, um, like, I'll never forget that answer or like that reasoning why I got cut from a, like a job, you know, application. So I think, you know, what I'm trying to get at it is have people that respect you. And there are people that will respect you and they want you to be confident. They want you to express yourself fully. Um, we just, you know, you have to, you have to really go within yourself and think, what do I want to do and who do I want to be? And like, you know, I think, I think what's beautiful is, uh, my brother is a great example and, uh, I'm not trying to call him out or anything. Um, but I know he's listening probably, he's going to be listening to this, but uh, he's an accountant. He works at a a big accountant uh, firm and, um, he wants to stretch, you know, into working, you know, with taxes and like helping people with taxes and like helping people, um, find ways to stretch their money even further and those sorts of things. And I think that's, that's beautiful. And, uh, you know, he wants to now stretch into accounting, like for either like a tennis brand or like a cannabis brand. And like, cause he, cause he's now thinking, Oh, I want to be in an industry that like I fully enjoy. And he loves tennis. He loves cannabis. Like he, he loves, um, bio companies too, but, you know, he's finding himself. And I think yeah. that is such a beautiful journey. Cause like me, you know, I think my journey is the entrepreneurial route, being a leader and being a voice and being a speaker. That's just where I thrive the most. Um, but seeing my brother in his journey in like trying to find himself in the corporate world space, but like truly be happy in the corporate space. Uh, I think that's such a beautiful perspective that, you know, I, I didn't really think about for the past couple of years, but now that I'm seeing him do it, I'm like, this is cool. Like, and, yeah. and I think he just has higher standards for himself now and he doesn't want to overwork himself like with tax seasons and stuff. So I got a lot of love for you, bro. Thanks. Uh, thanks Connor for uh, being a good example. That's fantastic, man. It's, it's nice to have people in your life that set the example for you like that. And uh, one thing I'll say about something that you touched on is um, at the end of the day, when people are clamoring for, let's say, greater income, more money, all you're really striving for is the feeling those things are going to give you. And what people forget is that those feelings associated with those things are readily available to you at any time, at any point in time, right? The difference is, is that When you get that windfall of money, let's say, that's a short-lived feeling. That feeling is like, oh, I've got all this money, and then it dissipates. It's like buying a new car, right? I I bought a Tesla last year, and for the first month, I was like, I absolutely love this car. And now there's (laughs) more things that I can find that are wrong with it, right? So it's like that feeling is short-lived when it's a material thing that you're after. If you go from object referral, which is the outside world, right? Everything that you have materially brings you the feelings you're looking for to 
personal referral, internal referral, meaning you know that you can generate the same feelings on your own through medita meditative practices, through Wim Hof breathing, whatever modality you choose, the feelings that you're looking for are already available within you. They, they already exist, right? And so, and, and the difference is that those things are permanent. When you refer to yourself, self-referral, those feelings are permanent. They don't go anywhere. When you generate positive emotions about yourself and your self-worth, and when you feel those things inside of you, it's not fleeting. You can go back to them anytime you want and regenerate those feelings, regenerate those emotions, right? You can't do that with the outside world because you'd have to constantly acquire more stuff, right? And what is the meaning of the word stuff? Think about it in the context if you're a hunter, right? When you stuff when you, when you stuff something and you're a hunter, you are filling an empty carcass to preserve the image of life. So when you buy stuff, what are you doing? You're filling your empty soul to preserve the image of life for others, right? So if you're clamoring for money so that you can feel a certain way because money makes you feel happy, well, you're just stuffing the empty holes of you with an external object to bring yourself an elevated emotion. And that doesn't work because you're just preserving the image of life as opposed to actually having life and actually being life. And you can make yourself life by generating those feelings within you. You can give yourself life. You can revitalize yourself by doing it on your own. And then it doesn't matter if you have a nine to five job. It doesn't matter if you live in a clay fucking hut. It doesn't matter if you're sleeping on the sidewalk in a cardboard box. If you can feel internally happy, which is what everyone's going for, they just want that feeling that money gives you, that material objects give you, you've got it. And there's nothing you need to do more, right? Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. So do you know who Dan Bilzerian is? I do know who Dan Bilzerian is. Yeah. So, <laughs> so for you know the perspective that I'm about to go into, Dan Bilzerian is a guy, for those of you that are listening and don't know who he is, he's a social media kind of influencer type guy. He got rich off of poker. Some say, you know, dad's money from like a trust and, and stuff, but that's not the important information. What the information that's important is this guy literally had everything. Like he had like his own cannabis brand. He was making money on poker. Back. All right. There we go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> always happens got to cut that out too so i'll just start from the beginning so dan bilzerian is a social media influencer that has a lot of money you know cars goes on you know a lot of trips and has like 20 to 30 women at his disposal and yep. it's funny because like he lives this lavish lifestyle quote unquote that like people chase on a fucking daily basis, uh, especially yeah. men, which I think is like super toxic. And um, it's funny though, because like he, he went on podcasts and he started talking about how like empty his life was, no matter the trips, no matter how many girls like he hooked up with, like no matter how much money he had, no matter like if he was going to, you know, Thailand or kickboxing in Costa Rica, like he was doing, like he had a jet, everything. And he was yeah. like, he's like, you know, you get to a certain point where you're just like, whatever, like, 
the more money you have, like you can buy shit. But like the thing is, you're still like empty. He's like, I was empty. Like I was still empty. And like, it's a, uh, it's not a like sustainable lifestyle for a lot of people because like you're just chasing the next thing. Like if you can buy, yeah, you can buy the Tesla and then like, all right, I got the Tesla. Now it's like, oh, let me get the Maserati. I got the Maserati. Uh, let me get the Ferrari. All right, let me get the Lambo. Let me get the Bugatti. Like, you know, and then you, and then you get there and you're just like, well, shit. Yeah. I mean, what's after that? Like, do yeah. I just, I got to customize a car to make it, you know, two mil. Like, you know, I got to buy a house that's like, you know, twice the amount of my house now. Um, yeah. And, you know, I got to travel to like every single continent in the world. Like, okay, so do I go to Antarctica now? Like, you know, it's just, it, it's crazy because people put so much emphasis on their, yeah, their material things. And like, you're right. It's like just trying to fill an empty soul. But like when you're actually doing what you love every single day, uh, it doesn't feel like work. And, you know, I'm not a materialistic guy. So like, you know, I'm cool with just having one car. Like I'm cool with, you know, one house, you know, as long as it's like self-sustainable at, you know, some point in time, if I can, you know, grow my own food source and shit like that, that's, you know, that's a yeah. win for me. Um, the ability to travel around, you know, the world is, it would be a nice thing too. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, really, I, yeah, it's just, and I can be happy with one woman in my life. Like I know, like yeah. I can be happy yes. with one partner. I don't need, you know, yes. 20 to 30 girls. Like that sounds like an overwhelming yes. experience. So, you know, it, it's, you're right. People are just, you know, they're so obsessed with material things and the almighty dollar and all that. And I think once I did psychedelics, I kind of grew out of that. Like I started to realize, I don't really care what my car looks like. I enjoy my car. Um, it's just a, it's a Jeep Cherokee Trailhawk. Uh, it's like a Stingray gray. So it kind of looks like, kind of looks like a Batmobile. Like it's pretty cool, but you know, um, I'm not attached to that. I don't make that my personality. Um, I don't buy expensive clothes. So what, like how, I guess like with people that are so attached to like material things, like, were you ever attached to material things at one point in life? And if you were, like, how did you get out of that phase? Yeah, I have a good response to that. I love material things. I still, mm -hmm. I still love material things, right? That's uh, the difference is, is that I'm not attached to any of them. I love mm -hmm. nice things because I'm aware that abundance is my natural state. And I've mm -hmm. only learned lack through society. I've only learned scarcity through society. I've only yeah. been programmed to believe those things. And so I like material things because to me, those are a manifestation of my belief in abundance. Um, mm. Can I live without material things? Absolutely. Have I lived without material things the majority of my life? Absolutely. <laughs> but I feel that part of my existence here on this earth is to experience an abundance of material luxuries to show as a form of showing that uh, I'm in connection with my, my abundance. Right. Um, but it, again, there's no attachment to that at all. I could lose my Tesla tomorrow and it wouldn't be a big deal for me. Uh, I've come to that place before where I was in a previous relationship and um, I had my daughter with this, with this other woman and 
we lived a pretty comfortable life. I was making a great salary. We had a nice place to live. We had two really nice cars. By all stretch of the imagination, people in society would look at me and say, that guy's successful, right? But I was <laughs> deeply unhappy. I was deeply unfulfilled in my life. And I left all of that behind. I I sold both the cars and bought a $5,000 beater Jetta uh, that had bubbles on the window tint. And I called it bubbles because of that, right? Um, I just, I left everything. I lost all of my money in the process. I went $50,000 into credit card debt to pay for attorneys. And I'm still in some ways, well, I recently have gotten out of that and am experiencing abundance in my life now as a result of years of internal alignment and years of inner work and reparenting myself, reprogramming my unconscious mind. And I now realize that that experience made it, I used to be attached to material things. I, I thought the image of those things is what gave me worth, right? I liked pulling up to my daughter's jujitsu practice and people were like, oh, this guy's got money and he's well off. I enjoyed that. But through losing all of that and then getting it all back now and then some, I have a renewed sense of appreciation for those things because they aren't coming from my desire for external acknowledgement, for external uh, for people to see that like externally I'm worthy, they're rather now a manifestation of me discovering my own worthiness and me discovering my own abundance and my own inner peace and my own inner happiness, right? And that's a fundamental difference in approach there. And now consequently, I have zero attachment to all of it. It doesn't mean anything to me except for the fact that it's a manifestation of my own inner alignment but just if I were to lose those things, again, it wouldn't mean that I'm misaligned, right? It, it doesn't right. matter to me at all anymore. And I approach it more from the lens now of like, I like material things because they represent to me at this stage of my life that I have experienced and am alignment in alignment with my inherent natural abundance, right? I've unlearned mm. my lack and scarcity mindset over time. That's yeah, that no, that's awesome. I uh yeah, I yeah, I like I like things, I guess material things, um, but I'm not attached to them. I like that perspective. That's the key. Because, that's the key. Cuz yeah. you, you you definitely don't want to like you don't want to hate money or like say money is the root of evil cuz you know, I don't think that's true. Money just brings out, you know, the true side of you. Um, that's that's just my perspective on it. And, you know, I think demonizing wealth and abundance is uh, just, uh, that's a lack and that's an insecurity that people just have to, to go through. Um, yeah. I feel like, you know, at some point, I guess, unless you're like a trust fund baby, you know, I mean, I drove a beat up minivan like in, in high school and, and didn't have a car in college, you know? So like I, I'd lived a, I lived a life where, you know, I, it wasn't super glamorous, but now it's, you know, it's kind of like getting to that point where I'm like, yeah, this is pretty cool. It's pretty abundant. I, I have less stress. So that is, that is nice. Um, you know, you talked about the, the struggles of debt and those sorts of things. And I think, you know, if you put yourself in debt, what is the debt for? Like that is the, um, that's just my always question for people that get put into mass amounts of debt. Like, you know, if 
because Robert Kiyosaki talks about like his debt level, but like his debt level is different because he's got a bunch of assets and like he's generating like cash flow. Like it's it's different than someone that's like buying Louis Vuitton and like getting into thousands and thousands of dollars of credit card debt. That's reckless and irresponsible, you know? So I guess unless you're reselling that stuff, which I don't think you are, but I guess, um, yeah, yeah, I love that point. So are you married now? Yes. Yeah. So my current wife and I recently got married and we have a blended family. She has two kids from a prior relationship. I have one child from my prior relationship. Yeah. And, okay. Um, and then we had a son together recently. So we've got three daughters and one son. Big fan. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, and I, so you, to your point earlier where you mentioned like the Dan Bilzerian thing, right? Being with all these women and I... <laughs> I have never been as happy as I am today through committing to one person, one woman. And yeah. I've never seen the success that I've seen in my life until I made that decision. Like it, it changed my life in every measurable way possible. And I know a lot of guys out there who are married and unhappy because they see on Instagram that all these guys are with all these other women. And I, I run myself through a test, right? Like if you ever start to get those feelings and you're a guy out there experiencing that, run yourself through a test. Okay. Are you in better shape than you've been in since you're, since you've been with your wife, are you in better shape? If the, do you have more money? Are you more successful? Do you feel happy, right? Run yourself through these check boxes. And if all those things are no's, then maybe you're in a wrong, the wrong relationship. Maybe you need to venture out and find someone who is better for you and wants you to be a better, higher version of yourself. For me, every single one of those boxes is checked. I'm in the best shape of my life I've ever been in. I'm the happiest I've ever been. I'm the most successful, both spiritually and financially I've ever been in my life. Every single measure of my life has improved since I've committed myself to one woman and have gotten married. I've never felt so fulfilled. I've never felt so happy. I've never had so much joy in my life on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, does it bring a lot of stressors? Absolutely. But what is life without that, right? I just see all those things as ways to learn and cultivate a best version of me possible, right? Mm. And being in a relationship and having kids is a constant it, it's that it's a constant self reflection of self-improvement. How much have you improved yourself day over day? And that's mirrored in your environment. It's mirrored in your, the quality of your relationship. It's mirrored in the quality of your relationship with your kids. All those things are mirrored back to you on a daily basis. And when you see those things improve, you know that you're doing things the right way, you know? And I think that so much of unhappiness in relationships, sorry, not to like tangent here, but I, I love this topic. So much unhappiness in relationships comes from not your partner, but yourself. Like mm. you in some fundamental way have become complacent or changed or stopped trying. You, you in some way have changed who you were to now where you're unhappy or unsatisfied. It's not usually your partner's fault. And I would challenge all the men out there that are unhappy in their relationships to think back on how did you behave when you were dating your wife? In what ways did you show up when you were trying to get her?
to, to be with you, to sleep with you. You were doing everything. You were pulling all the stops. You had the dates, the roses, you had every, everything that you wanted <laughs> until you got what you wanted. And then yeah. you got what you wanted and you stopped trying. And now that's why you're unhappy. You need to keep that same fucking energy years into the relationship. I, on my Instagram recently, I posted me and my wife went out to like a really nice dinner together. Like we do those things. I date my wife constantly because that keeps the spark alive. I show her that she's special. I prove myself and my value, my worth as a man by taking her out, doting on her, treating her right. And that right there is, that's what a woman wants. And so I would argue that most people are unhappy in their relationships because the man's not showing up as the same person as he was in the beginning of the relationship, <laughs> right? And it's like, you got it. You've got to keep those things going to keep the spark alive. And if you fell in love with this person in the beginning, there were traits about them that you liked. Those things haven't gone anywhere. You just have to uncover them through years of shit that you've poured onto this relationship. You've got to excavate that and go back and find those pieces of your significant other that you love and respect and that you fell in love with in the first place. Right? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, as a, as a single male that's 27 right now, trying to find himself in, in, in I guess, the dating world, you know, I, I definitely take, I definitely take for granted, like, some, like, just like aspects of like, that one person that can really just bring you that peace and joy. Um, I think that's what I value the most. And I guess that's where just like, misalignment comes with with my relationships personally uh which is partially my fault because i don't find peace in myself i still think 100 percent. so I, I i'm not gonna find peace in someone else uh if i can't find it within myself and you know i, I have peace for sure in myself more than i ever have in my life but it's still like not 100 percent there and it's really just you know hoping that you know having someone in my life that can balance me out in that regard and, and, and bring me that peace. And, you know, when things do get chaotic, just to have that patience with me, because I know that, you know, life isn't perfect. And I think people try to, you know, portray life uh, in, in the perfect manner. But like one thing I also want to add is when you look at a boss or a C-suite leader or a founder or business owner, I think their relationship with their significant other is very important. And I say that because, I mean, think about this. You have uh, a founder, you have a C-suite leader. He cheats on his wife. He's not good to his wife. He's not loyal. Uh, maybe he's like not, he doesn't say very kind things to her. This is the person that, he's like either he or she is married to uh or is you know with an intimate level like an intimate level this when you have intimacy involved that's different because that is the the most organic and raw connection you can make if that person's not being good to their partner who gives them all those things why what makes you think that person is going to treat you any better because you make them money like yeah. that, like that's the thing. Like if, if I have a, like, let's just say I have a guy, C-suite level, you know, leader, it's my, like my leader and he like cheats on his wife, isn't good to his wife. What makes you think he's going to be a good leader to me? Like 
what makes you, he doesn't give a shit about his wife that like does so much for him maybe but like yeah. I I mean what what he's not going to care about me at all so like why would you want to work for that person I guess is what I'm saying why would you want to do business with that person that's one thing that you know I try not to uh, align myself with from a business perspective is people that uh mistreat their partners you know and and, and that's the sort of thing of uh like it's just it's it's something that I look at from a personality perspective. If that person is going to cheat on their significant other or doesn't value their significant other, they're not going to value me. So like, it's something that I don't want to get myself involved with. Um, so I do think relationships are important in terms of Absolutely. looking at it as an example of conscious leadership, because you have to lead in a relationship as well. So that's, uh, I think that's a good thought that you have. And honestly, like when you talk about that happiness and those sorts of things, that's, that's what relationships are, are made to do. And, uh, when you have that alignment, uh, your abundance is going to increase tenfold because when you have someone like boosting you up, giving you that platform, like you're, you're even closer to the 5d because you have someone like pushing you up by your feet in a sense. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's good to have a partner like that. But yeah, I also leaders, like I look at leaders on, uh, if I can, how they treat their significant other. Of course. Yeah. I mean, here's one thing that, uh, I'll toil with a little bit. Think about the word that we call those people in, in corporate organizations, we call them leaders, right? How do we know that? How do we know these people are leaders? Do they act like leaders? Do they look like leaders? Do they talk like leaders? Do they behave like leaders? Like, what does leader mean? That's such a powerful term, right? Like people, people called Hitler a leader, right? It's like, you got to think about this at a, like a etymology level. Like, what mm. does the term leader mean? What what are we saying that they're leading? Are they leading the organization? Are they leading the people in the organization? Are they leading themselves? What are the things that this person is leading and why have we designated them as a leader? Why are they worthy of being followed? Hmm. Right. And I find that so many times I, in fact, I can say this pretty unequivocally, I have never worked for some one person I've worked for in an organization that I would be deemed worthy of calling a leader, right? Mm. And this person manifested both uh, organizational alignment as well as personal alignment, where mm. they had their personal integrity in alignment with the organization's objectives, and they led the people in the organization just as well as they led the organization itself, right? Mm -hmm. That, to me, is a leader. And what's so funny is... I see a lot of people uh, in, or I'll relate this to myself, a lot of people in organizations where there was a while where people were telling me that I wasn't ready for leadership. And I had to sit with that a lot because like, what are the things that make me not ready for leadership at a corporate organization, but I lead my family every day. I have four kids and a wife and they trust in me unequivocally to make the right decisions. They trust in me unequivocally for their future to guide mm -hmm. them. Right. So if I'm leading in my everyday life here at my house, how is it that I'm ill-equipped to be a leader within an organization? Right. What, how are those traits really any different from each other? Right. <laughs> and I, I fail to see the gap there. Um, 
where I think that if, if you're entrusted as a leader in your household and you're doing a successful job, you can carry that same leadership skills over to an organization and you can lead people successfully. Um, so that's something that I've toiled with myself and, and, uh, and had to manage around in my day-to-day life. But yeah, coming back to my original point is I'm cautious to use the word leader with people in an organization because so many of these people, the majority of them do not display the fundamental characteristics of leadership. Most of them are followers and they're engaged in followership, wherein they're just following Mm. the direction of the person ahead of them. They're following the direction of the person above them. They don't have their Mm. own thoughts and opinions, their own strategies. They're not leading anyone in their daily lives. So it's like, why am I designating and calling you a leader? What makes your thoughts and opinions more valuable than my thoughts and opinions? Right. <laughs> and that, yeah. that's something that I've, I've gone toe to toe with leaders in my organization about. It's like, because I'm lower than you on the totem pole in an organization, I bring an idea to the table and you get say over my idea because of your title, but not based on the merit of our ideas. Right. And right. this should be a meritocracy where people are able to bring things from the bottom up and say, we need to change these things, especially when they're closer to the things that need to be changed. Mm -hmm. And for leaders to in some way investigate that and decide whether or not like, Hey, yes, that's a good idea. And if not, it's not just, I outrank you and I'm a leader. So I'm saying no, it's like, Hey, we looked into that and here's the reasons why it might not be a good pursuit. And that Right. Like re-weaponizes the person bringing the thought forward, right? So anyway, my original point is I'm cautious to use the word leader for leadership in an organization because I don't clearly see that a lot of these people are leaders, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's play with words. Let's play with etymology. When you yeah. look at managers, what do they do? They just manage people. They yes. just make sure their work gets done. They just make sure that yes. it looks good. They just make sure they get 100% on the test. They just make sure yes. that the bottom line is getting filled at their individual contribution level, which is the ROI in the company. Because when you yes. get paid $60,000, you're expected to bring in, you know, give or take double that, I guess, probably. Yeah. The ROI is probably probably twofold for each individual contributor. That would be just my guess off the top of my head, just because you're supposed to bring in a profit uh, and then you have revenue lines and expenses lines and like those sorts of things. Um, So, you know, with benefits and all those things included, that's also a cost to the company. So like if you're making 60 K, but you have benefits and those sorts of things, they're probably expecting you to bring in like $120,000 just off the top of it off the top of the head. So that's what managers do. They manage you. Directors, they direct. They direct some sort of team vision. So it's like sales directors, they're directing the sales vision, which is like your the quota for this region needs to be this. You know, yeah. you need to use this system, that system. You need to make this many calls. You need to set this many meetings and have this many deals. They direct some sort of blueprint or some sort of approach to hit your quota. Um, and it's just at a, at a mass scale. Like it's, you're, you're a director, so you got more people. Like you have the managers and the individual contributors. Managers yeah. just have individual contributors, which isn't as many, you know, teams of, right. you know, five, maybe 10 people. 
then you get to, you know, the upper level, those like vice president, executive vice president level, like, you know, you start kind of getting up to the C-suite or just more of like the, the top like director roles a little bit above the director, but below the C-suite. So like that vice president, executive vice president roles, you know, those people are just in my opinion, those people just take the orders from the C-suite executives and just kind of like tell the directors, this is what you need to do. This is kind of how you need to do it. And you need to mold it into a fashion that that works. And, you know, what they care about is, is their department, like if marketing has an executive vice president, is their department, you know, maximizing the budget that they get every year? Because yep. if they're in the red, if they're a minus percentage of ROI, that's where they're like, ah, we need to scale back either people or resources, whether it's systems, you know, dinners, you know, stuff like that. Got to scale it back. And yep. then you have the C-suite, which they have their own kind of objectives to get done. Uh, but they have to report to the founder because in the end, the founder has the vision for, you know, the whole corporation and they want to yeah. do it in this, in this sort of way. Um, but what I've kind of realized through working with like kind of founders and those sorts of things, the founders don't create like all the detailed blueprints. It's the people below the founder and the founder's just like, this is my vision and this is how we need to get there. So I need you guys to iron out the details. So that's kind of just my thought process. And you're right. It's not necessarily leadership. Like managers just manage people. Directors direct people to some yeah. sort of vision for the company. And then the yeah. vice presidents are kind of just like, you know, they just, they talk. They just like to talk in front of the teams, in front of a lot of people uh, and say, and you know, what's interesting. I think, like what I've noticed too is a lot of people just say words to like get some sort of like time gap filled or, you know, just to have a bunch of corporate jargon to like make them sound smart, but they don't provide any value to the conversation. Like I've noticed right. that a lot too. And I just don't think that's how leaders work. I, I agree. So I, I would say that leadership is a character trait, right? Mm -hmm. Not a job title. It's a character right. trait. It's not like designation within an organization. It's do you carry the characteristics of a leader? And then you can be designated as a leader and someone worthy of leadership, right? Like unequivocally agree. And so to tie on to your points at like varying levels, and I've been working through these thoughts recently on how to help people in the nine to five working space understand their roles and responsibilities within the organization as they climb the hierarchy, right? So a lot of what you just were mentioning, and these are things that that I think would benefit people who are, well, really at every, le every level of, of corporate employment. Um, but here's how I would say it. If you're an individ individual contributor, your job in that role is to perfect the execution of your job. It's to get very, very good at executing at what your job is, right? The next level up from once you've mastered that, and each level requires mastery from what I can tell. Once you've mastered that, 
your next role would be to move into management, right? And at that point, to your point earlier, you're responsible for the coordination and delegation of people, right? Where, so you know how to do the thing that needs to be done at the bottom level. And now you're telling people what to do and how to do it, right? So now you have people working underneath you that you're making into masters or perfectors of that skill set, right? Then you move into, let's say, the director level. Now, your objective or goal at the director level is to define the strategy for mm. the managers so the managers can tell the individual contributors how to execute on that strategy. So at the director level, you are taking the strategy, you're giving it to the manager so that the manager can inform the individual contributors on how to execute towards that strategy. The manager then reports out the statuses of that strategy to the director. Then we get to the VPs, right? And the VPs are responsible for creating the strategy, creating something from nothing, right? Where mm -hmm. there's no strategy that exists for a specific department, that's where your VPs fall, where they are really responsible for crafting a narrative, for taking the unseen and making it seen, and it working in cohorts with C-level executives to do that. And that's for their specific part of the organization. So then they're defining this strategy, they flow it down to their directors, who then communicate it to their managers, who then get their individual contributors to work on it, right? Trickle down economics. And then when you get above a VP and you're in the C-suite of things, that's where you're defining the strategy for the company. You're responsible for looking at the organization holistically and you're saying, hey, where do we want to take this organization in the next 5, 10, 15 years? And that's where like macroeconomics comes into play, an understanding of the market that you're in, the competitive landscape. Uh, mm -hmm. You've got to be navigating all those waters. And then you take that big vision strategy and you tell it to your VPs. The VPs create a strategy around how that influences their part of the organization. And that flows downward. Right. So at each level, there's a thing, there's a level of mastery at the individual contributor level. You're mastering the fine details. You're mastering the execution, the manager level. You're mastering the allocation of human capital and human resources at the director level. You're mastering the distribution of strategy among the managers on your team at the VP level. You're mastering the creation of strategy from whatever the C-level executives have defined as it pertains to your part of the organization. And that's always a piece I like to put out there to help people. So that when they look at where they're at, it's like, okay, if I'm a VP, my objective is to take the company strategy, see how this applies to my part of the organization and define a strategy on how we can attack that larger vision based on our individual contribution or our specific facet of the organization. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good description. Really good points. So thanks for, Thanks for clarifying um, kind of the detailed information of, of each role. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, because, uh, you know, being an individual contributor for, you know, four or five years, uh, I guess the toughest part has been, you know, being able to move into a role of managing other people. Um, because like I've managed people like in college, like I was in, I was in res life. I was a resident director, um, did a lot of charity fundraising where I had to manage teams, you know, of like 10 people to help me and get to like, you know, fundraising goals and those sorts of things. Um, you know, I guess there's sometimes situations where people are really good 
at their jobs and they don't move up. What is the reasoning behind that? And how can someone kind of get out of a situation like that? Because there could, there are a lot of talented people I feel like that are out there right now that are stuck by behind like complacent managers or like managers that aren't really good, but they're just like enough to stay where they are. And like, it's hard for people just to jump from like individual contributor to a director type of role. So like, how do people get out of situations like that where they know they're good enough to be in a managerial spot or a director spot, but they can't get to that role? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, I think this kind of brings a lot of my cohesive thoughts together. So you're in that spot, you're at a nine to five, you're at a company, you're working nine to five, right? Part of the problem with mastering what you do at the individual contributor level is if you're good at it, management is not going to want to move you up because they want people who have perfected and mastered that. So there's two sides to that coin. Yes, you should master that skill set to prove your worth or validity, if you will. Um, The next thing is that if you're really good at it, they're not going to want to move you beyond that because you're really good at it and you likely make everyone else's job in the hierarchy easier right? Because you are the guy to go to, to execute on a task. And there's not a lot of ex- people who execute out there. Like, believe me, people who are high level performers at their job and executing at to the level of rigor they could be, there's not a lot of them out there. So when you find a good one, people tend to want to keep them where they're at. So the way that I've worked around this, and I think the way that anyone could apply this is First, you vocalize to your manager your intent to move up, right? You have to make it a known that brings the awareness. The only time we can make change is when we're aware, right? And so if you haven't made that made that vocalization to your leadership, it needs to be done. You need to make them aware that's your intent and that's where you want to go. The second thing is that you start taking on the tasks of your manager without them asking you to do it. Right. So if you have people on the team that you're working with, if there's, let's say, six individual contributors on a team and you're the top performing one who's perfected your skill set, you start influencing and helping those around you to be where you're at, to get them to the level of performance that you're at. If you can prove that you can cultivate the skill set of other people on your team, that alone is a designation for manager title. Right. That's what a manager should be doing is cultivating the people below them to bring them up. Um, while allocating them as a resource. So if you can do that as an individual contributor, you can prove your worth as a manager because before you get to the next level, you're going to need to prove that you can do that thing. You're going to need to embody that role before you get there. And so that's that's something that you have to take up on your own because the manager's not going to tell you, hey, I want you to now cultivate these people. You need to do that for yourself and advocate for yourself and say, Hey, I've cultivated uh, Jim, John, Sally, and Susan to be as high performing as I am. I've allocated them across projects. Here's how they're executing. And your manager's going to be like, this person needs to be in leadership position, right? Now, if you have some of those managers that are out there that are scared to lose their job, and when you're a high performer, they don't want to promote you because you'll make them look like shit. Well, that exists, and that's pretty pervasive across a lot of organizations. If you're in that Mm. spot, one of three things you can do. One, you can go to their manager, so your director most likely, and talk to them about your intent and show them what you've done to to prove yourself worthy of management. Two, you can move to another part of the organization as a manager. You can go to a different manager and say, hey, here's the ways that my skills have been manifesting themselves and I'm ready to be a manager at this part of the organization. 
Three, if all else fails, you jump ship to another company. You find a company who will recognize your skill set, and on your resume, you indicate all the things that you executed on your team as an individual contributor and the, and the way that you allocated resources. Those are the three ways to get past that hurdle, uh, the way that I see it. Do you see jumping around to different departments being detrimental to your career? Uh, no, I see it as a, as a great benefit. I would advise anyone that's been in a role for more than two years to get out of that role and get into another part of the organization. The more that you can understand the way that an organization works holistically, the quicker you are on a path to C-level leadership, right? As a C-level leader, you need to understand the various parts of the organization. That means operations, that means sales, that means finance, right? That means accounting, that means marketing. So if you have the opportunity to bounce between all those roles in your organization and the entire time you're doing that, you're creating a cohesive, vision and picture of the company, that's only going to benefit it if benefit you if your goal is to become a C-level leader, right? That's only going to get you there quicker because you can see a company holistically. Where people begin to fail is they view a company myopically, right? You're in operations. And so you think the most important thing to scale an organization is operational efficiency. Well, then you get into sales and you understand like, oh, sales drives 85% of the organizational organization's growth, right? So it's like, Okay, then you get into marketing and understand, well, we can't get customers to our salespeople if we don't market the organization well. So building that holistic picture and framework will only benefit you. And I think you stay in a role for two years. And as long as you're constantly moving up, even if you're jumping departments, you get a greater holistic picture of the organization. And that'll only benefit your growth uh, long term. That's awesome. Good stuff. Love it. Love it. Um You've, you've been an incredible guest. I think you've really encompassed a lot of things with uh, the corporate world and how to navigate the corporate world and also be conscious at the same time. Uh, so thanks for coming on. Like It was really just a, an amazing opportunity to, to get this perspective because you know I've been really kind of preaching to entrepreneurs a lot, but I really want to help people in the corporate world as well, because I think there is a good balance. And, you know, I think there's an opportunity to do what you love, make money, be happy, live comfortably, live abundantly all at the same time. Like, I think it's very possible in the world we have today. Not everything has to be so negative. Like, I think there's a lot of positive um, companies out there that are doing good things. So, uh Amazing stuff. Do you have anything else that you would like to, I guess, finish up on, reflect on, add on to, you know, all the gems that you've dropped? Yeah, I would like to say a few things. The first thing that I'd like to say is there are more than there's more than one way to achieve freedom. You can achieve freedom through entrepreneurship. You can achieve freedom through being an investor. You can achieve freedom through being an employee. What's most important is understanding the skill set on how to do that. Right? It's about an effective allocation of resources. The second thing that I want to say is don't get so enamored by everything that you see on social media. Open <laughs> your phone and look at all of the people on there that are coaches and starting a business. Tell me that's not a rat race in itself. Those people are just striving for, for pieces of your income so that they can be free. Right, That's a rat race. That in itself. So social media has in some ways become its own rat race. 
And it's, it's so duplicative. Everyone's doing the same thing on social media, right? You have your marketing leads, you have your paid ads, like people are just copying and pasting styles across social media to get their own version of freedom. There's so many ways to attain freedom. And what's more important is the skill set on how to become free, not the modality. So don't get so caught up in being a business owner to accomplish freedom. It's going to take you 10 years as a business owner to become free anyway. You've got to build that. You could put the same 10 years in at an organization that gives you equity or pays you well, and you live below your means and you invest appropriately, and you can achieve the same level of freedom. It's about the skill set, not the modality, right? Uh, and the final thing that I would say the most important takeaway from all of this is never sacrifice your personal integrity for personal gain. Do not sacrifice your personal integrity based on someone else's feelings of what they want you to do, think, or feel. And do not sacrifice your personal integrity for money ever. Right on. Yeah. Excellent stuff, Cody. Yeah, that was uh, a lot of truth for sure. Um, so... Lots to reflect on. I think this was a great uh, episode for people that, you know, are trying to just figure out life and, you know, figure out where they truly belong um, and, you know, where they want to uh, kind of achieve their goals and aspirations, which can be at a corporation, um, but also has to be internalized first, has to be internally sound first. So um, thank you for opening up about your personal life too. Thanks for sharing all of your your wisdom. And, uh, yeah, would love to definitely, we'll have to get you on here again, uh, just to, to get even more perspective on your subconscious and how to program those things too, man. Love your stuff. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate you, Cody. <laughs>